and welcome to Caged In, where we explore the career of Nicolas Cage, film by film, to figure out whether he is the meme that the internet paints him out to be, or if he may be just the greatest actor of his or any generation that there is. This week, we will be talking about the trust. And when I say we, of course, I have a guest, and that guest is a returning guest who is Liam Dempsey of the fantastic Spotlight podcast. You may remember Liam if you're a long-time listener to the podcast when he joined me for the dizzying lows of Bangkok Dangerous. This time, like Bangkok Dangerous, it is a film directed by brothers. So there is a weird theme that me and Liam seem to have developed throughout this podcast. But will this be another stinker like Bangkok Dangerous or will we be hitting the highest highs of Nicolas Cage or will it just sit in the middle? Just another average Nicolas Cage film. I will, of course, be asking Liam what was his first Nicolas Cage film what is his favourite, and most importantly, is he a Nick Cage fan? As well as figuring out in this film, does Cage have bad hair? Does he do anything crazy with his voice? And most importantly to some people, does he freak out? A little spoiler warning before we get into this. Obviously, me and Liam talk about every aspect of this film. Well, a lot of it, and a lot of that will involve spoilers. So if you haven't watched this film, please feel free to pause the podcast now and watch the film. And you can do that quite easily if you are living in the UK. You can watch it on Amazon Prime at your, at your, at your viewing pleasure. Or if you're in the US, you can watch it easily on Netflix. So... If you haven't paused it, or, or if you have paused it and you're back, great. Let's get on with the podcast, and I'll chat to you guys at the end. I'm planning a heist. Do I need a team? No. All I need is one other person for my harebrained scheme. My partner in crime this week is returning guest. You may remember him from the dizzying lows of Bangkok Dangerous. Or he'll be out on the internet commenting about the world of Star Trek on his podcast, Spotlight. Of course, I'm talking about Liam Dempsey. How are you today, Liam? Hello, matey. Yes, I am as well as I can be considering the current circumstances. (laughs) Well, before we get into The Trust, that is obviously the heist film we are talking about today, even though there are twists and turns in it and it's not your traditional heist movie. I always ask my guests at the beginning of all of these, uh, and I didn't ask you the first time you were on the podcast, um, is, are you a Nicolas Cage fan? I feel like I may know your answer, but... Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm fanatical about Cage. I would say that, you know, there are people who are real proper hardcore Cage fans. I assume you count yourself amongst them. Petros, like... Maybe this podcast has changed that fact. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I'm not like, you know, uh, I wouldn't watch every Cage film that came out just because he's in it or anything like that. I'm definitely not obsessive about him in the way I am about some actors. Uh, But I do like Cage. I think he is capable of being a very good actor. 
Um, and I will, I will go to back for Cage. I will defend him because I kind of think that in a lot of people's heads, he has become quite a joke and is someone who people kind of rub rub up against and don't like for no real reason. And I will kind of definitely stand up for him and say, look, this guy has done some really amazing performances in some great films. It's not all shit to pay his tax bills all the time. So, yeah, I, will, I, I do like him. Oh, definitely. Like, my, my listening figures would prove that because it's like trying to sell a Nicolas Cage podcast to people. They're like, I don't like him. I really don't <laughs> like him. And it's like, no, it's not about, it's not about, like, genuinely, there is some great stuff. And I would argue a lot of the time, and it comes up time and time again on this podcast, is that Nicolas Cage will do something incredible in a film that doesn't deserve it either. It, the, the script can be shit, and he will, he will give you, even if it's one scene or, like, some like a moment you'll be like wow like he's he's pulled some i don't know witchcraft out of his bag and like sprinkled a moment of just like that's proper acting that like not just um yeah not not, well not done, just, Nick. As you said. proper acting yeah. that is yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> that's what you want that's what you want right and and just the the sheer volume of films he's put out like I've, i would argue his only kind of contemporary at the sheer volume of films at the moment is willem defoe who has like yeah. a staggering, like a hundred and thirty credits on IMDb or something like that. Not so sure that can always be held as a positive, though. To be completely no, 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 no. But I'm just saying, like, like in regards to just like volume of content out there, like those two, and they seem to be from the same school of thought uh, a lot of the times. Uh, so yeah, we've established you are somewhat of a Nick Cage fan, probably more than most of the people who won't listen to this. Uh, do you remember the first Nick Cage film you remember seeing? Yeah, you know what? I was thinking about this and kind of looking through his filmography, like thinking, what is the first thing I would have seen him in? And it's funny because it's only really since I've been an adult that he's started doing kind of any kind of family films or anything like that. Like, actually, because I was born in 85, so really, in the time when I was a child, everything like that, he didn't really make kind of family or children's films at all. So, actually, weirdly, I think the first Cage film I might have seen might be Face Off, you know, <laughs> um, in terms of because when that came out, um, it was 97 that came out, wasn't it? Um, and I was 12 then. And I remember it being when it came out on VHS, like a massive film, like in school, you know, in terms of really cool. You can imagine 12 year old boys like they're going to be absolutely loving shit like Face Off. Like, yeah, this is oh, the, yeah. the coolest film around. And I, I'm pretty sure it was the kind of film I went round one of my mates' houses and watched. I, I have a weird feeling that uh, a mate of mine was one of the first people I knew with a DVD player. Like, he had one in 1998. And wow. I, I think he had Face Off on DVD, like a really early kind of, the, the kind of case that you would, would never get now, the really early type of DVD case that looked really weird. Um, and I think I went round his and watched it there on DVD. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty... I remember being pretty blown away by the film and also by Cage. 
because that's the thing. I remember the opening of that film where he, he walks out disguised as the priest and he grabs <laughs> the girl's ass and kind of, you know, goes, oh, lordy, lordy, like, you know, into the, uh, or hallelujah or whatever the case. And, you know, then I was like, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. Like now, I watch it obviously and go, "Oh, he's a uh, you know uh, a man who's committing sexual assault." But you know, back when I was twelve years old, I was like, "This is the coolest guy ever." <laughs> and he is he's essentially the bad guy, and that I think like up until that point, like, yeah. Like looking back in his career, like and that first ten minutes, as you said, is when he really gets the shine, and I think that is what a lot of people take away from that film is like. Oh, Nick Cage is always crazy, and it's like, well, he plays like most of the running time as that film, as like John Travolta's character. Yeah, he's, so he's the just straighter like kind of... one for yeah. most of the film. But it's that it's that grabbing the ass, and it's oh, I could eat a peach for hours. Yeah, that is kind of but burnt into twelve-year-old boys like <laughs> retinas and brains yeah, yeah, for the yeah. rest of their lives. It's the kind of shit uh, when you see it at that age, you think it's cool. Like, at that yeah, age, yeah, oh, he's so fucking cool. And now you're like, oh, he's a massive creepo. Well, I remember, like, to your point of, like, the, the 90s was like a Wild West for, like, what yeah. you could, like, get away with watching at a young age. I remember, so I was born in 91, so uh, okay. I remember being younger than, must have been younger than 12, and we had, like, a system in our house that you could what, put a VHS in downstairs but you could watch it in the upstairs bedrooms. I'm not. I don't know what witchcraft or wizardry was going on. That, that this that could happen. That insane for that era. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I remember. So like, I would like put on a put on. I had a friend round. I was like, he'd brought around a VHS. So put it in downstairs. Like we went up to my room to watch it, and my mum went on to like the video channel, and I kind of like got this Petros. Yeah, like uh, scurry downstairs, like in my PJ. Say yes, mum. What's 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 up? She's like, what are you watching? I was like, oh, don't worry, it's just Commando. I've watched it plenty of time round Daly's house. And my mum was like, my mum just went, oh, all right. If you've seen it before, like get on with it. Even though it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> oh. going round, like throwing people off cliff faces, snapping necks. Like it's. Ridiculous. I love it if it was like what's hardcore it? anal pornography. You're like, oh, I've seen it before. I'll find them photos. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm the youngest of three as well, so it kind of feels like with a lot of that stuff, like around that time I was watching like Commando and playing Grand Theft Auto and it was like, you're the third one. We've given up. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, like we don't, we don't, we don't care so much about the rules. Like, we're just glad that you're here. Like, we've we've expelled so much energy on the first two that when it came to you, it's like, ah, watch Commando, get on with it. As long as you're not in our hair, you'll be fine. Um, so, what is your favourite Nick Cage film? Do you, is one sitting in your heart? Well, mate, we're gonna go straight back to Face Off, the first and still the best. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of, you know, I would say my top three vacillates mm-hmm. around uh, Face Off, Kick-Ass, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I would say. Um, but definitely, Face Off, uh, I think it's got to be number one. Um, for me, that that is a genuine like, action classic. Uh, I think it's, personally, I think it is probably John Woo's best film. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, and that, I think, would be controversial um, to a lot of people because it's one of his Hollywood movies. Uh, a lot of people do look down on his Hollywood films, but Face Off, for me, is the only Hollywood film he made where he successfully transitions his Hong Kong style 
onto Hollywood cinema. And it's the only one where I yes, feel right. is like there's lots of great little moments in his other Hollywood films, um, but that movie it feels of a piece with the killer, her boiled um, bullet to the head, uh, better tomorrow, all those kind of incredible action films that have those kind of themes of kind of brotherhood and nemesis and, you know, they've got the doves and the slow-mo <laughs> and these grand, like, action sequences and everything is extremely heightened. I mean, the the mm. characters of Sean Archer and Castor Troy, I think, are... I mean, the fact that I even remember their names, kind of, you know, off by heart from one movie, like, they are incredibly iconic-feeling characters. And the switcheroo that they do, obviously, in the first kind of 10, 15 minutes, he's got that incredible opening set piece where it introduces uh, Nicolas Cage as Castor Troy, who's the bad guy, and John Travolta as uh, Sean Archer, who's the uh, good guy. And uh, there's a massive kind of huge set piece at the beginning. And then, obviously, they swap faces and, you know, suddenly Travolta is playing the bad guy and Cage becomes the good guy. And so they get to play both roles. And it's it's mad to me that there was never a sequel because I kind of think, surely, that opening 15 minutes is so successful with them Mm -hmm. playing those roles. And I, I love the rest of the film as well. But I just kind of think to get an entire movie where it was switched back again... Would have been really yes. amazing. Like, if they made a sequel and this time Cage was the bad guy all the way through and Travolta was the good guy all the way through, that would have been really interesting as well. Um, yeah, and I just think, I think it really holds up. I think those two performances by Travolta and Cage are absolutely incredible. Like, both of them. Well, it's, yeah, it's got a really interesting story as well because it sat on the shelf for a few years, just the script mm. kind of being kicked about to a couple of studios and like one of the biggest like kind of drawbacks i think it was warner brothers maybe had it at the time or paramount had it at the time uh like initially and they were like our oh, prosthetics aren't good enough that we could dress up this other actor as the other like as the other actor and it's like the writers were like going to bat for it going no they will just play the other character like do what <laughs> why can't you just un- understand like that premise is like, what? Travolta is going to act like Nicolas Cage. And it's like, well, yeah, it is that simple. And like when it's like done and yeah, speaking to, um, I've recently spoke to Nicolas Cage's stand-in who was there oh, on right. the set for face-off. And he said, best working environment. He said like on set, you could just feel something in the air. Do you know, like when you yeah. hear those stories of like, like the guy making tea at Abbey Road and going, I could tell the Beatles were cooking up something great. He was like, I had that feeling where it's like Cage was firing on all cylinders. Travolta was firing on all cylinders. Like John Woo was just like an absolute gentleman and like really putting everyone through their paces. Yeah, everyone was having fun, but the work was getting like done. And it's crazy that that film as well, it was like shot back to back with con air and like the they overlapped in when they were filming so like cage was going from playing cameron poe one like in the morning to playing caster troy at night which is just like for like a like arguably a career best performance to kind of like squish it in between doing something else is 
is is crazy. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he does he does get to be a little mad as Sean Archer occasionally. In that, obviously, there's a, the bit where he has the fight in the prison because they're in that mad futuristic prison yeah. with kind of Super Mario Brothers style boots uh, at one point. And yes. uh, with, with that, at one point, he, he goes a bit crazy. And of course, there is the classic, you know, I want to take his face off. Face off. <laughs> it's also incredible. But yeah, I love that movie. What? I think that's that, that's got to be, yeah, number one all the way. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been kicking about in like the, the, the corona times as well, saying like it's a hard movie to watch because there's a lot of like face touching in that movie. <laughs> so like Sean Archer's kind of like thing with his family. I'm not sure if you have a, I don't know, like I, I tend to just give my family a fist bump or, or a hug. They just like draw their hands down each other's faces. And even doing it to myself now feels a little weird. I mean, like, it let is alone weird. doing it to. But yeah, it's yeah, yeah, a yeah. very, very John Woo thing. That, that, yeah. that is definitely something that came from Woo. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that was in the original script. That is something <laughs> that on set, John Woo went, oh, and you can, you know, put your hand down each other's faces and stuff like that. Because it's the kind of, if you look at his like, Hong Kong films and the relationships they have between people, they are always very kind of touchy-feely. If you've ever seen The First Better Tomorrow... It's one of the most homoerotic films you ever see in your life. <laughs> like the kind of relationships between the men are very, all very. It's all physical kind of emotion. He's, he's not going to do well uh, in the Corona era, I don't think. <laughs> well, perfect. We talked of the dizzying heights of Nicolas Cage. Now let's talk about, um, I'd say, somewhere that sits in 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 the middle of his career in regards to quality. And let's talk about the trust. Uh, so, what are your initial thoughts like once you watch this movie? What were like the the initial things bubbling in your mind about this? Well, I mean, the first thought was is obviously the last time I came on this podcast, we covered Bangkok <laughs> Dangerous, uh, which is ge- genuinely, I am completely genuinely one of the worst films I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it's it's still the worst Nicolas Cage film I've seen. Um, I, I mean, you know, I don't know whether has anything beaten Bangkok Dangerous. In terms of because you've worked through so many now, um, there's others that are like just insufferable. I think like there is some slight joy to be had in Bangkok Dangerous compared to uh, other other films. Uh, like one is no, no, it is the worst. Sorry, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I just think that there's. There's stuff I've seen recently, so obviously that's kind of stung me a bit. Do you know what I mean? Like when, yeah. like, obviously, obviously a few breakups time ago, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel as bad ten years later. But like <laughs> the last one, the last one stings a bit. But when you really think about that, like heartbreak from all those years ago, you go, you know what? You really fucked me there, Cage. Yeah. So Bangkok. Yeah, I've, I think I've kind of tried to suppress that. I suppose at the moment you are you're heading towards like or in the most hardcore VOD era of Cage's career, aren't you, at the moment, in terms of the films yeah. you're covering at the moment? Well, I, I I stopped this, and I was like, I'm halfway through his like filmography, and I was like, but I'm at 2009? <laughs> I was like, he has released half his filmography in the space of 10 years, and like what what like what's probably been beneficial is I went in with like the bar 
scraping the floor like like with a lot of these movies and then come out like going you know what that weren't actually that bad like because i think like obviously on the internet and that everyone goes on about this kind of post 2010 nicholas cage it's just like it's straight to vod straight to dvd fair left right and center and it's all going to be dross but then you get like a movie like stolen which is his um like team up again with Simon West, who directed Con Air, and it's like that's better than it. That's better than it. Like looked like it would have been, and has any right to be. Do you know what I mean? It's a fun kind of action romp, hour and a half in out done. And I I I feel quite similar about the trust in that. Like it's better than it. It, it really should have been for like the kind of and the dvd covers as well a lot of these like kind of artwork for these 2010 era cage it's like you're not you're not doing you're not doing any service to the movies a lot of the time and i don't know one of the worst dvd cases of all time is bangkok dangerous and like that is you can definitely judge a book by its cover because i think there's stuff that doesn't even make like physical sense with his hair. Oh yeah, it's a really weird and stuff cover, like... isn't it? And it's some of his worst hair in that film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, the trust, uh, yeah, the reason I mentioned Bangkok Dangerous was because I, going in, I remember when you when you asked me to come back on, you, you sent me the list of films that were left over that hadn't been taken yet. And it was, you know, this was bottom of the barrel trots for the majority of the movies that were left over. Like, you know, really, really... And I was look, I was heavily researching like, each film, looking for it and going, that, right, that's obviously turgid shit, terrible, terrible. And I really wanted to find something that was not going to be as bad as Bangkok Dangerous. And then, like, and then I hit upon the trust and read a couple of reviews and was like, oh, it actually sounds like it could be okay but still went in with reasonably lowered expectations. And uh, I, I got to say, I was really pleasantly surprised. I, I, I think it's a really kind of decent little film. Um, so, yeah, I, this in, in comparison to Bangkok Dangerous, this is a massive winner for me. I mean, like, Bangkok Dangerous makes this look like Citizen Kane. I'll say that. Well, I think if you're going to judge your Nicolas Cage movies by Bangkok Dangerous, you're always going to be... <laughs> yeah, you're going to come up strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, for those of you at home who haven't seen this, this is like a... Cr- well, it's listed as a crime thriller that, like... But it plays like a kind of two-hand comedy, especially to start <laughs> with. And it kind of has this, like, tonal shift halfway through which like how did you feel that that worked because at the beginning it does have this kind of odd couple feeling like how did yeah did you did you get any of that or were you like i I thought it worked fine Uh, for me i mean i'm someone who i get very a very very confused especially when like kind of big film critics kind of really uh kind of go off about tone problems in terms of a film that just flips about in tone and does it deftly and well like in terms of there, there are films that don't do it well and then you know by all means but a, a film can mix up its tones and that's fine I think this does mm-hmm. it I think this does it perfectly well I think from the beginning it's clear that this is overall a drama but it's yeah. got you know it's got definitely humorous touches to it and you know it's definitely got a, a lightness 
to something, but you always feel like you're in a potentially dark, dangerous world to me. Like, it doesn't feel like, oh, it suddenly turns really dark. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, you know, it feels like we're in quite a dirty, scummy uh, den of vice straight away. I mean, the, the opening scene is that quite gratuitous, actually, uh, sex scene with Elijah Wood. And there's kind of, yeah, he's kind of lifelessly having sex. Uh, and there's kind of, you know, some close-up boob shots and stuff like that. I kind of feel like they felt a bit kind of thrown in to be like, yeah, you know, this is going to be some video on demand. We've got to chuck in some boob shots for the lads. <laughs> like, yeah, like, uh, and I don't quite know why Elijah would seem so unhappy about getting like, ridden in that scene, <laughs> to be completely honest. Well, I think the tonal shifts work in the kind of characters as well, because at the beginning, we kind of like, it, it doesn't like mess around with like any kind of exposition to who these guys are. No. We get this scene intercut between like Elijah having dead eyed sex with this woman and like Nick Cage kind of like getting ready for work. And it like, you kind of get this impression off the bat that you've got like this guy, do you know what I mean? He's a bit of a party guy, like he's I don't know, he's, he's having sex in the morning, whereas Cage lives with his dad. Like, he's smoking a joint before work. We can see him in his, like, Las Vegas um, uniform, like, p- uh, PD uniform, which is Elijah Wood's character, whereas, like, Cage looks very straight-laced. He looks very suburban dad. And you kind of see, like, Elijah Wood, an apartment block. Cage driving out from the suburbs, like... And, yeah, one of the things I think this, like film is good it doesn't mess around it's it's a very swift an hour and like it, it says 92 minutes but like i popped in the dvd and it said like an hour and 27 minutes so i was like oh great I've, that's a that's like five minutes i've got uh, that's uh, six minutes i've got back as well i was like perfect lovely stuff um but yeah it like i knew who those characters were or you think you know who those characters are from that initial just kind of first what like five yeah like five minutes you know you know exactly who those guys are yeah no 100 i mean this is that's that's really interesting you say actually about the characters because yeah for me the shifts were more to do with the characters uh than mm-hmm. the plot um because the characters do seem to kind of almost kind of alter a little bit because at the beginning like you say, the way you're introduced to Elijah Wood's character, you kind of think, oh, he seems very, like, wastrel um, in his kind of depiction. And you think, well, if anyone's going to be kind of, you know, a, a loose cannon or something, it's going to be this kid. He's some, like, you know, even though he's a cop, you think, well, he must be, like, a hardcore druggie or something like that. And then, mm-hmm. like, Nicolas Cage's character seems very, like you say, straight-laced. And obviously, as the film goes on, it, th- those two things completely flip around in terms of who's the responsible character. Well, and it's that thing as well, like the humour in the first part of this. I was like, I'm actually loving this. And there's some like moments that really jump out to me. There's like a whole sequence. So like, it's kind of like out, like they, like Cage notices, like plot wise, he notices that there's a discrepancy with some paperwork regarding a guy who was put away for drugs. And he gets this like scheme to do a heist. But like, and he goes to Elijah Wood with it. But there's this scene where he gets a job working at a hotel. And it is like, 
amazing like comedy performance and there's just like there's this great moment where you've got cage putting down like towels or, like on the sunbeds and he's kind of got this swagger about him and then like, it looks like him and his colleagues are playing some kind of like i don't know like exercise or like having having like a bit of a laugh after work and he's like char charring round this like yeah. banquet hall <laughs> this is great. I love this. Like, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really fun at that stage because uh, I think immediately when you start to realise that Cage's character is more than he seems is when he arranges to meet Elijah Wood's uh, character. Um, uh, I should say, Elijah Wood plays a character called David Waters, who's a sergeant yeah. in the Las Vegas PD. Uh, Nicholas Cage plays a character called Jim Stone, who's a lieutenant Stone. in the uh, Las Vegas PD. And uh, he arranges to meet him at this bar, uh, which is called the, the Pepper Mill Lounge, I believe, <laughs> uh, which is a real bar. And it's been used in a bunch of movies, um, primarily Casino and showgirls, um, and one thing I'll say about this film is the location management is on point. Like, this mm-hmm. is all, this is set in Las Vegas, obviously, I'm a massive aficionado of Las Vegas. Uh, I went in 2007, funnily enough, with uh, the co-hosts of my podcast, Spotlight, Paul Wilson and uh, Matt Brothers, and absolutely love Vegas. I think it's kind of, you know, an adult theme park. And I think anyone, I think anyone loves films. There's something about Vegas because it kind of feels like a huge film set in many ways. But what's so clever about this is you can tell it's, it's steeped in the sense of place of Las Vegas, but it feels like the dirty side of Las Vegas. This mm-hmm. isn't on yes. the strip. This is all the little shitty parts of that. Because Las Vegas is actually meant to be a really rough place um mm-hmm. if you basically go off the strip it's made really really rough and this you totally feel that um in this and the places they go to they feel vegasy but th- like they feel like the seedier side so the pepper mill like i say it's using casino which is a gangster movie it's using showgirls uh which is obviously all about the kind of you know cd strip joints and stuff like that and it's absolutely stacked full of neon and immediately i was like oh my god the colors in this film are gorgeous from the very first shot there's a kind of uh big establishing uh tracking shot and it goes over a ferris wheel which is kind of got all lit up in kind of like pinks and stuff like that and the uh director of photography is a guy called sean porter uh, who was the uh, cinematographer on Green Room, uh, which is a brilliant film, if you've yeah. seen that. Uh, really, really good. And it, this is a guy who knows how to shoot a picture. And I feel like he elevated it with his kind of visual sense of place. And that mixed with the location um, management here. Because I tell you what, great locations adds so much production value to a film. This this is a movie that was clearly made on a reasonably low budget. I think, you know, it's probably one of those films where the majority of the cash goes on hiring people like Nicolas Cage and Elijah Wood. So you have a big star above your car banner, and then the rest of the film you think is probably pretty low rent, probably pretty 
not not costing much. I couldn't find the actual budget online. I don't know if you did. But IMDB has an estimated nine million for the okay. budget. Okay, well, I mean, movie. nine million is is low for a, low. For a yeah. big film with big stars. Nine million is low. You've got to think that Cage at this point is, especially with his tax bill to pay, is, is demanding a hefty paycheck for <laughs> yes. uh, doing the what? film at the end of the day. And would you know? At the end of the day, he's, he's the master of the ring. You know, he's he's gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want a bit of money. I've been Lord of the Rings, like you know, to be in this. So I think most of the money probably went on them. But yeah, the locations they get in this. The only location people I could find on IMDb is a guy called Mark Gaffney and someone called Gene Varajon, and they do a great, great job here because you've got the pepper mill, uh, which looks fantastic. You've got kind of the Ferris wheel. You've got a monorail. At one point, mm-hmm. that Elijah would put, <laughs> and looks that looks amazing as well. And straight away, as soon as they meet up at this bar, uh, that's when you start to see hints in Cage's character that he's more than he lets on. That actually he's kind of repressing himself at work. Previous to this, we've seen him try to beg his boss for like new evidence department or something. He's yeah. trying to get going and the boss is kind of like, oh, whatever, mate. Uh, and he kind of feels very kind of repressed and kind of sad guy who loses his dad. And then suddenly when he's at the bar, he comes to life and perks up and he's kind of all this big character in front of Elijah Wood. And you don't know whether this is just to kind of impress him or what. And he does this thing where he eats an entire lemon at one point, and he kind of with just, Tabasco, yeah, 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 with Tabasco, and it seems to almost just show him he's like hardcore, kind of like yeah, because Elijah Wood tries to do it and like coughs, coughs his shit up like immediately. He's like, "What are you doing? Why are you eating that?" And he just seems to do it as a sign of manliness. And he tells him, "Yeah, I can eat a whole level with Tabasco." <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a there's a thing as well, like to your point of like the director of photography and the location scouts. The directors of this, uh, the Brewer brothers, uh, Alex and Benjamin, are like have made their name in music videos. Yes. So they have done music videos for Alt J. Uh, they did their music video for Something Good, which, like, if you haven't seen it, like, I recommend it. It's this kind of like spectacular thing of like uh, uh, a bullfight, but it's just kind of got this surreal and like just the angles they use in that, and just like the again, like the the visuals they use and you can see a lot of like their kind of like um music video like style yeah, coming over to this like like especially in regards to like there are some like really interesting little kind of like uses of shots and editing in certain points which i imagine like coming from the like uh music video world they would have definitely had a kind of like uh, one second at least a say in the edit of this film. Maybe not edited themselves, but kind of had that kind of idea of what they aesthetically would have been going for and tailored their shots to how it w- the finished product would be coming from, like, the, yeah, the music video world. And, like, yeah, the locations are great, even down to the, like, apartment they end up in, which, like, mm. takes up a body of this film. And, yeah. Like, uh... And they very cleverly as well, when they're going through the heist and what they're going to do, they like they let you know what the geography of this apartment is going to be. Because we get, like again, another humorous moment, uh, especially like, uh, like Elijah Wood has taken all this like three hours, he says, to, to use tape to map out 
the apartment and cages cage us well yeah uh, uh, stone asks him like what's like what's up with that bit and he's like oh b attacked me so i couldn't i couldn't quite finish that bit and it's like it's those nice little asides and there's like moments like in the pepper mill lounge and stuff like that and they feel they feel human like it's like and like cage just feels like a bit of like a joe schmo and like this this was yeah he lives with his dad played by jerry lewis mm. and this was his final performance like yeah. in the film and like you kind of see this, yeah, as you said, like a, a repressed guy, but he's, I don't know, he's, he just, at the beginning, I was like, oh, he just seems like a really normal guy. And then there is a kind of like, there is a moment in this film uh, when he, yeah, when he goes to buy the guns and it's like, whoa, like, I did not, I did not personally see that coming in regards to like his character. You do kind of get a little sense that there is maybe some kind of, like uh, un unhingedness bubbling under yes, the surface. That definitely, hit, the pot is ready to boil over at any point. Well, well, you get you get constant hints, don't you? That uh, and Elijah Wood's character actually says this at one point in terms of how long have you been waiting for someone to do this with? Going in terms, and you mm-hmm. do feel like as if it, it, uh, I think what's really clever about the script is that we never know. It is ambiguous in terms of, was he kind of manipulating Elijah Wood's character all along? Or was it a case of he just saw an opportunity and he's been a bit of a sad sack all his life and suddenly he was revved up by the idea of doing something crazy and kind of, you know, went uh, and was suddenly having fun and kind of got really into it. And I really don't know. I still mm-hmm. don't know watching it, which which it was. I'm just kind of like, is he like a master manipulator? Or was this just, you know, massively, wow, like this is so much fun. Like I'm finally, I feel alive by what, mm-hmm. what we're doing. And he just got caught up because I could buy both. And I'm really not sure. Well, when it started to go the way of, like, it could end up with a twist that he is this master manipulator, I started thinking of the, uh, is it the score with Edward Norton where he plays, like, uh, he pretends to be a handicap uh, guy. It's uh, I have not seen the score. That that sounds like it would be problematic now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, 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 he like, kind of pretends to be handicapped and, like, um, and then at the end of, it's, it's kind of like the, again... Uh, a problematic film now, The Usual Suspects, considering uh, Kai's <laughs> associate. But, like, at the end, like, he kind of, like, walks off. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, Edward yeah. Norton is doing, like, the the stereotypical, very, oh, very what, broad... Is, is it just basically ripping off The Usual Suspects? Like, that's how he gets away with the crime, is he pretends to be mentally challenged? He, pre- he pretends to be mentally challenged, and, like, he's got, like, this limp and, like... He seems to be oh, like. This sounds me- really like usual suspects of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's like mentally incapable. Like, yeah, he's, he he plays it like he just hasn't got the smarts at all that he could have been like behind this. I believe it's, I believe it's short. Like, I, it's a big name in it as well. It's it's ridiculous. Is De Niro in the score with him? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially, and they they again, it's a heist movie as well. Yeah, so yeah. like. And, and and they're 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 in the movie a lot in boiler suits because I think they like play cleaners and like 
in this, they're kind of in these like all black suits with the way. And I was like, I, this is the twist. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be really pissed off. But I liked the way this film played out because it's got like quite a, a downbeat ending, right? There's there's literally no survivors. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's yeah, it's, it's a really really downbeat ending. Um, I mean, before we get there, because just because we're talking about films. It reminded us of the the film that this reminded me of most was Dragged Across Concrete. I don't know whether you've seen that. It's another recent film. I mean, it's come out mm-hmm. after this because obviously this is 2016. Dragged Across Concrete was last year, um, I think, which is an S. Craig Zala film. Yeah. Um, kind of quite already notorious uh, director, directed Bone Tomahawk and Brawl in Cell Block 99 makes absurdly violent, like, crime or Western kind of movies. And uh, Jared Cross Concrete was his kind of three-hour epic uh, starring Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn, uh, two more problematic figures now. And uh, <laughs> it was about kind of two um, ageing kind of cops who are basically find themselves they can't they beat up a guy and it gets caught on camera because they're all very kind of uh topical and they kind of basically uh, uh they either lose their jobs or they feel like they're about to lose their jobs so they start planning uh this heist and it kind of comes about in a similar way um to this film where they kind of come across it and then start staking it out on their off days and stuff like that and it kind of gradually all goes wrong. So it's, it's got a very similar kind of plot um, to it. Uh, but I, I think this does the job in like half the time and is really, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really strong little, little B picture. Like uh, I really, I really do. I think it's really good fun. It's got a lot of character to it. And like you say, it has got a very downbeat ending. Um, another film that's slightly reminded me of is End of Watch. Uh, mm-hmm. The David Ayer film um, about two cops, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena, are kind of sailing close to the wind in that, and they kind of end up uh, arresting a kind of big, big name gangbanger in it, and it kind of ends up eventually getting them killed. And this kind of had that sort of uh, kind of you know vibe of two guys heading towards kind of destruction who have got got involved in something too big for them. I, I thought the second half of this film, as it built towards that conclusion, had a massive sense of foreboding and incoming dread to it. Mm-hmm. Like, by the time they actually break into the room where suddenly they go from this really horrible, grotty flat and they discover this kind of secret vault, gleaming, kind of white, silvery vault that's got obviously the hiding place for those. What you assume is that this is, this must be a treasure trove of belonging to like the most hardcore gangsters or criminals mm-hmm. like in Las Vegas. And it, they got this secret vault where no one would know, where no cops would know about it or anything like that. And it's completely in an innocuous place and it's full of, booty, like fucking, like diamonds galore of money and everything like that. And as soon as they find that, you're like, oh shit, you're in too deep. You're in too deep because this is far bigger than what you thought it was. Because like you say, it starts 
in quite a small way. It literally is just Nicolas Cage just sees, he, he, he notices a docket, and what it is, it's a bail, it's a bail notice, isn't it? And yeah. the guy paid for the bail, which was like 200 grand, and he paid for it in cash. And he was like, how did he have that much cash? That's mad, kind of thing. Like, you know, and now let's follow this guy and find out there must be more to this. And I don't think they ever expect, or at least we don't know, they don't ever expect to find something this big. And, well, that's... and, that's, and that's the thing. You go, oh shit, you've gone too far. You don't know who you're fucking with. Someone is about to turn up and blow you both away. Well, and that's where the conflict comes in as well, like especially between both Jim and David, because David assumes that Jim knew about it the whole time. Yes. And that's when he confronts him. In like a like there is a few like again, simple but really tense moments. There is a moment when like a security guard comes by to kind of like see what's going on, because rightfully so, he's seen two guys dressed in black loading in like drilling equipment into an apartment so like elijah wood kind of goes out and he's like downplaying it all and like oh he just wanted his cigarette as well and he kind of has this chat with the security guard and like says oh we're, we're undercover cops but then we've also got this in the um credits just listed as a woman played by sky ferreira tied up and she like it keeps cutting back to her like trying to break her way out mm. and it's just this like little kind of pot boiler where you like oh, and then you've got cage at the window with the silenced pistol pointed at the security guard and you're like right where's it like you could just feel it ramping up and tension like getting tighter and tighter and like the end of that scene as well i kind of like needed a, a moment because uh david comes back into the apartment the like the woman has got up and like They've both got their masks off and like, uh, uh, yeah, Jim's ready to shoot her because like up to this point, he's already killed two people. So he, he killed the guy he bought the guns from, which is like a real side swipe. And then he killed the guy who's flat, like from what they could find out from the information was supposed to be the only guy there. And it's like, well, we know he's willing to kill yet. Like, Sky Ferreira hardly says anything, but like from moment one, I just felt like the utmost sympathy for her, just like in the way she's shot and stuff like that. You like, and it's it's a, it's a nice ace's sleeve up the card. Like, uh, yeah, it's a nice uh, ace card up the sleeve of the directors in that like you are led to believe like oh yeah like she didn't know this guy, she didn't know what's going on in this apartment, and then the way this plays out in the end it is really like whoa what the fuck like because she's sympathetic she's like and she she's the one playing them and especially playing um david because she she can tell he's the the sympathetic one of the two because jim has shown that he is kind of the the cutthroat guy who will kill at will basically mm. and it's i mean it's funny you should say it because i I, I literally, as soon as she turned up, I was like, right, well, she's going to be their undoing here. Like, in terms of, not in the sense of I didn't have sympathy for her, because she's tied up mm -hmm. to a fucking toilet. And she, so you know that clearly, whoever she is, 
um, she's potentially been mistreated or, or whatever the case, you know, you don't quite know what her deal is, if she's a girl who's been sex trafficked or, or what. But immediately I was like, ah, I think I think if you kind of let this girl get a hold of you, she's gonna she's gonna betray you mm-hmm. in some way. Whether that be, you know, a thing of she is too scared of the real villains of the piece, or she is actually more involved than we know, um, you know, who's to say, because she's probably, I mean, you know, potentially maybe she's thinking, oh, you know, if I, if I sort these guys, set these guys up, then I'll be let off. Or, you know, if they find me here after they've gone, they're going to kill me. You know, she, and like I say, they've already killed a guy basically in front of her. So, presumably, she's also thinking, kind of, um, you know, that they're obviously ruthless themselves. So, but I was like, yeah, when he let her make a phone call, I was like, oh, well, that you're fucked, mate. You're completely yeah, yeah, fucked, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. immediately. Like, yeah, because Elijah Wood, you're like, straight away, you're like, yeah, you've got too much, you've got too much heart, mate. You're not, you're not built for doing this and uh, one thing I will say is Nicolas Cage and Elijah Wood they are giving 100% in this film they are not treating it like it is a paycheck movie at all no way uh, they, they're both really really strong in it and I, I would say Cage I have seen him phone it in in films before I think in Bangkok Dangerous he definitely <laughs> both, I think he sleepwalks through that movie and uh, Elijah Wood, not so much. I would say that he's someone who has made consistently interesting decisions. Like since Lord of the Rings, it, it kind of feels like he took the money from that and went, well, that's fine now. I'm fine. And now I can just do whatever I want. And has just yeah. done quite interesting little projects along the way. And so them together, it, 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 there was a really nice cohesion between them and their scenes. Like you say, actually quite heartfelt uh actually you kind of you come to like both of them for different reasons and you do when cage pulls out the tickets to the harmers it's like look i've got two tickets and we're gonna go off together because he obviously is just like right that's it actually we're doing this and we've got to go on the run because it's mm-hmm. gone too far and obviously elijah wood's character is not prepared for that at all and it is that thing you are like yeah, like, do do like make it up between each other and just run because what have you got to lose at this stage? Like, and you almost feel if she hadn't made that call, maybe they could have got away because he had yeah. the tickets. That and that's the heartbreaking moment that he had the tickets. He wasn't lying. Yeah, and that that and that's the thing. Like, and I think one of the things that this film like does really well, and like I, I guess a lot of people would probably come away a bit salty with it is that like there's not a lot of stuff explained like their like real motives aren't fully explained in regards no. to, to to why they want to do this they, it doesn't really paint them to be like they've been fucked over or like they're in debt or anything like that or just like do you know what I mean like and we don't really at the end we're, we're, we're left with a thousand questions in regard to who who were those people who who is Sky Ferreira's character like what is her part to play in this like you said is she somebody who happens to be scared of the big bad mm. or is she a part of the big bad herself and we're, 
we're let and like a lot of people I could imagine like would come away from this being like, Well, like I don't like that those those un like untied ends. But I was like, I really like that about this and it, it like for the yeah, the writers and directors it's a promising first first uh, like a debut feature for yeah for yeah because it is their it's, first it's their first proper yeah. film isn't it um and yeah yeah there's a few shorts yeah 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 like i think um like you say i think you can tell that they come from music videos uh with i do think it has uh got a slight music video visual aesthetic but not to an overbearing degree it's a film no. it's a proper film it isn't a case of you feel like it's an extended music video or anything like that. And uh, I do think it's a really promising uh, little movie. I think it's a shame they had they don't seem to have done anything since, really. And I think that's a bit of a bit of a shame because I would like to see what they could achieve with a kind of bigger budget and stuff like that. And like you say, I, I think it's a really good lean and mean kind of script and film. Like you say, it's a tight ninety minutes. It, doesn't outstay its welcome at all. You know, it's kind of in and out. And, you know, it has that kind of 70s crime movie feel where, you know, motivations and stuff aren't so You kind of have to fill in the blanks of the characters. But I, I really like that in terms of by the end, like you say, you still... Because even though he has got the tickets to the Bahamas, that still doesn't tell you whether, um, like, actually this was all a sort of setup from the beginning. He tells you that he would have actually stuck to his word and, like, got them out of the country. But who's to say how long he's been planning this for? Did he know that that vault was there or not? That's the big question, is he? Did he yeah. know that? Or did they just and chance into it? And in regards to the tickets, we've already seen that he's happy to pay over the money, yet will shoot a guy in the head, take the money back. So... Who's not to say he will go, here's your ticket to the Bahamas somewhere down the line, either then, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's true, that's true. Lull him into that full sense of security and then end him, like, whenever. And, like, I think that's what, it, like, is done really well with this. And I, it, one of the things that really surprised me and I was, like, really, like, glad about when it came to it was when, like, the kind of, like, the machinations a lot of the time when it comes to heist films is most of the film is set up and then we kind of get this like Ocean's Eleven, do you know what I mean? Fast cut, boom, 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 boom. It all going on at the end. Whereas this, the setup for the heist is the first half hour and then the last hour of the film is this kind of like like two-man play of just these two guys in an apartment just trying to like trying to figure out and a lot of it's just them like drilling through this vault and like trying to figure out how they're going to get in and it's it's just a nice little exercise in just tension well and, like, even that's some tense the thing with the hammer yeah. when it's yeah. uh cage they have to hammer through something at one point don't they and cage holds on to something that elijah has to hammer and I was completely convinced that Hammer was Sledgehammer was going to go into his head at one point. You know what I mean? You are so like ah, like yeah, really worried about him missing it or something like that. It's just yeah, it's a really tense film. And then we have the the moment when like uh, Cage is looking through like that optical device to look at the uh, 
look at the cogs of the vault as they like click through. It's like as um, Elijah Wood's character is, is doing the combination. And like that is just like they really know what they're doing and just like again like tightening the screw of tension and you're there mm. and like they hang about on that last one because it's like I, f- I think I think like I got it I've, I'm not sure did you hear a click no I didn't hear a click I thought I heard a click and you're like oh I'm like fucking hell and like at that point you're rooting for them yeah and then it's it's after that and we we get to like that moment when. Uh, Cage like goes crazy at him when he's like he's gone back down and he's tried to like convince him. Yeah, because they they find all the diamonds and then they find the apartment. It's just like again, like this is something that kind of like doesn't kind of sit with me too. Is the apartment like they find out in the third act that like the apartment is like littered with guns and it's like surely as guys who work in like crime scene like and like evidence collection mm. stuff like that you you would have done a sweep of the apartment beforehand instead of like getting to like do you know what I mean getting to the moment when you've got in the vault and then that's when you find out that this apartment is just like assault rifles and shotguns everywhere and a a, a gold desert eagle in like a, a a case and stuff like that it's like that kind of feels like a bit like why like that fits the story as opposed to fitting the characters because we know their set of skills before that. But you do feel like Jim Stone, Cage's character, is slapdash. Like, because all the way oh, through, yeah. you feel like he's just going, well, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's do it, let's do it, mm-hmm. let's do it now. Whereas Elijah Wood, who's going, oh, no, calm down, we've got to, you know, kind of prepare more. And he's very much like, no, 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 let's go, no, no, no. So you, you kind of feel as if I can buy that he's just pushed them into this too fast and they're not actually prepared for what they're doing. You know what I mean? And I think that's example by the fact that instantly kind of all, they kind of fuck it up and straight away, like Elijah Wood's character wants to leave really. And he has to keep convincing yeah. him to stay or everything like that. And it's just kind of, yeah, it's like, you see, he says how, um, he says, how hard do I have to work to like convince someone to take like all this money basically. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And you do well, kind of sympathize with him in that moment. Well, there's a, there's a weird, I'm not sure if it's uh, intentional, but there's like uh, a peep show reference in this movie. Yes. Where's the turkey, Jeremy? What? The turkey. Where's the turkey? I thought you were getting the turkey. You what? No turkey? You fucking idiot, Jeremy! You total fucking idiot! That was your job, you fucking moron! You cretin! You're a fuckhead! That's what you are! A fucking shithead! It was a joke, Mark. I was joking. It was a Christmas joke. Uh, Oh, I see. Oh. Of course I've got a turkey. It's an organic turkey. I took ages researching it online. It's going to be delicious. That, that looks like a lovely turkey. I'm sorry, I, I flew off the handle a bit. That wasn't very Christmassy. No, it wasn't. I apologise. When, uh, yeah, Nick Cage's character, Jim Stone, like, pretends that he didn't, he didn't buy the van for the, for the heist... And Elijah Wood's character just goes off at him, doesn't he? He's like, yeah. what the fuck? It's like, you had one job, you had to get the van, you had to get the van. And he's like... It was I think a joke, exactly... It was a Christmas yeah, yeah. joke. 
<laughs> it literally is that scene. Well, he says as well, he's like, oh, it's just a pre-heist joke. Oh, it's like, what? <laughs> that famous pre-heist joke, you yeah. know, you know, you've seen it everywhere. Like, like Danny Ocean just before, like pulled down like Brad Pitt's trousers and slapped his bum. Went, hey, it's just a pre-heist joke for you, Brad. Like, yeah, I literally yeah, thought just... exactly the same thing while I was watching it. I was like, I was like, it's the Christmas joke scene from Peep Show. <laughs> It's like, this is so weird. Because especially Elijah losing his shit so much. Like, you fucking idiot. Like, what are you doing? He's just like, so shocked. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's just one of those weird things where it's kind of, you know, just somehow a writer's got a similar idea. Because, you know, God knows whether the kind of the Brewer brothers have ever seen Peep Show, <laughs> I don't know. But it did fit, it totally felt like, let's see, you know, immediately, anyone who's seen Peep Show would immediately think of the Christmas episode. But for me, like, as, as like, uh, Elijah Wood's character, that should have been alarm bells at that point, like, something that is, like, so serious and, like, dealing with hefty people. This guy is willing to to just make jokes about things when, like, I don't. It kind of sees like a lack of empathy towards like, to to, to yeah towards David in regards to like this should be a really tense moment for you. Like you are you are on the verge of like committing a massive crime potentially. Well, and you're you're. <laughs> it's that Jim's it, having the time of his life and he's yeah, in his element, yeah, yeah. isn't it? And David is all the time just wanting to be anywhere but here from the very beginning to the very end and that's the conflict and and i I like that that's what i like about their kind of character arcs is there's this kind of interchange between them because it's set up in that first thing that you think cage straight laced elijah wood is the kind of frivolous party boy like laissez-faire attitude to everything like we see him on a crime scene playing with like this like little uh little drum kit and that and like a guy bursts out of a wardrobe at one yeah. point and there's like a cop like on the floor and he's just laughing like i'm gonna go out for a cigarette and like whereas you kind of see like cage is like almost like nasal like kind of like oh is there any chance we could get some more money for the <laughs> for the crime scene investigation <laughs> like he, he's kind of he's got this mustache and like uh, listeners at home can't see, but like in honour of uh, yeah uh, Jim Stone, I'm sporting a nice moustache at the moment. Uh, uh, is that a special, <laughs> a trust special for the episode? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> nice. Nah, it's, uh, it's it's I'm I'm, I'm in lockdown. I'm un, I'm unemployed, and uh, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a dad now, so I can I can I can rock a moustache. So uh, <laughs> that that's what the moustache is. But it just happened to be this film. It fits perfectly, uh, and I could. I can understand, like, just visually, you think moustache, you kind of think either, I don't know, Saddam Hussein or your mate's dad. And, yeah. like, I yeah, very yeah. much straight away got... And he has got dad. the dad look in this film, which is deliberately... Well, I tell you what the uh, character dynamics really reminded me of, Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. Yes, because it, that is a very similar um, dynamic where it starts out. Walter is the respected uh, teacher, and Jesse mm-hmm. Pinkman is the meth dealer, the wastrel. And then, as of course the show goes on, uh, you know, and about halfway point, it goes from thinking 
well, Jesse is the loose cannon. He's the problem. He's always getting water into trouble. Water's going to have to bail him out and everything. And suddenly it flips where it's like Walter White is a megalomaniac, like absolutely insane, like empire-building like monster. And Jesse is actually the one with the empathy, the humanity, who is going to want to not go that far and not uh, completely compromise his morals for the end goal. And so by the end of obviously Breaking Bad, you're clear that Walter White is the baddie and Jesse Pinkman is the good guy. Very much so. Okay. Uh, and it's similar here where it's like actually, but the, the only problem is, is I think that um, David Waters is not as smart as Jesse Pinkman ends up being. Like by the time we get to El Camino, the kind of Breaking Bad guys film, you feel like Jesse is really, he's actually pretty fucking smart at what he's doing by, by the end. Whereas Elijah Wood in this, uh, right to the end, I was like, you dumb shit. Like, uh, what the fuck are you doing? Like, why did you think this was a good idea? Like, you know, at least leave, uh, either don't let her use the phone or leave her behind or whatever. Like, as soon as he, he took her off in the car, I was like, oh, mate, you are so fucked. Like, you know, you are not going to get rewarded for this act of kindness, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, like, and there's like, well, before we kind of talk about that end point and just kind of how the, like that that end scene is, there's like a really interesting scene in this and like a really interesting character in Evan uh, Supley's character. He's uh, the guy from like One Excel, the... isn't he? Yeah, and uh, Power Rangers, like Martin Moy from Power Rangers in the nineties. I think he was in like the the American series of that. Like he played, he played, he played, he played like he? one of the rough tough. Bat- yeah, I think he plays like uh, one of like just the 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 jerk like real life bad guys as opposed to not like, one uh, of the main not that main bully duo in Power Rangers, is he? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly. Wow, well, okay, I'll have to check this out afterwards. Like definitely, like <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I was a big Power Rangers stan back in the mid nineties, hundred percent. So that would be an interesting one to look up. But like, yeah, he re- like his character it's is great. just like, is yeah, he plays this guy who almost has like this Harvey Dent like attitude to things and like reminiscent of uh, of uh, oh, who is it from No Country for Old Men? He just has this thing he does over and over again where he does like the the Russian roulette. It's yeah. like, is it me or you? And like points points a gun to his head and like we get a glimpse of what David is like in that moment because he, he goes to fire the gun at him and like, it's obviously a, a well-worn trick he plays where he's never put a bullet in the gun. But like David just like cowers and he's like, oh, like, don't shoot me. And it's like, ah, oh, like, in that moment, I was like, you're a good guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, like even, if, even if it wasn't Jim's intention to like, to screw, like, to screw him over or like mm. get one over on him, He's going to do it anyway because, like, he might like to smoke a joint and, like, kind of slack off at work and stuff like that. But that doesn't mean that, like, he's going to want to, like, I don't know, like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, revel yeah, in yeah, all yeah. of this go, criminal go activity. Go as far as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I agree. I think, um, yeah, Ethan Sutley's uh, character is great. He really stands out in his couple of scenes. Because of me, you're, you're like, yeah, I could totally buy that there's, like, guys like this in the police force. These are fucking crazy 
white power mad cops. Who kind of, that, that trick he continually plays with the Russian roulette is really effective. Does he actually? Does he actually end up shooting someone? I can't remember. No. No, okay. he doesn't. He, he pulls it a second time to someone else, doesn't he? I couldn't yeah, remember he does it if it in goes that, like, wrong. He does it in the like cocaine lab that he kind of knows about. And it's like, you kind of see this thing that the cops there must have this thing that when they're kind of hard up on money, they just go shake this place down. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For all they've got in their... In their um, yeah, in their bank, or oh, well, like bank, as it were. Um, and but yeah, I've just looked, and uh, Ethan Supley is not in Power okay. Rangers. I got that wrong. <laughs> but he was in Boy Meets World uh, a handful of times. So oh, right, well, okay. a lot of times. So uh, I do apologise to people. Yeah, it it kind of tells you what this podcast is. It's me just <laughs> like doing a lot of guesswork through this and then getting out the end of it. Um, but yeah, that. So to the, like the end point of this movie and that 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 scene on the freeway, like, I did you ha- did you ever have a moment where you thought, oh, that's it, he's getting away with this, he's just going to drop her off at a lay-by or at a service station, and he's on the home straight. No, I I, I thought something's happening in that car. I thought either she's going to start fighting with him, like you know, in the car, or somewhat immediately as soon as he leaves that place i was like someone's there someone's following they, they've been there too long she was able she, he allowed her to call someone as soon as he allowed her to make that call i was like she has called someone down on you mate you you are fucked going like and like, as soon as you see a car like the, the, i think there was a split second when you saw he was driving out on the sort of desert highway and there wasn't actually anyone kind of like near yeah. him for my I was like, oh maybe, maybe he is gonna kind of get away with it. But then as obviously you see a car start to pull up towards her, I was like, right, okay, you're fucked. You you are fucked. There is no way you're getting out of this because they're either just gonna fucking shoot through and, and he's so naive right to the end because he actually pulls out his police badge and says, yeah. like, oh, I'm a cop, I'm a cop, don't do it. But he's like, do you think guys like that give a fuck? Like, you know, the, the kind of guys who have access to that vault, like, these are the kind of guys who don't give a fuck about killing a cop. You know, well, yeah, they, that... and that, that's the whole thing. It's like, they are at a higher level than that, where that isn't going to phase them. And well, you're just like, yeah, you are, you are completely fucked. They've probably got a load of cops in their pocket, as well, like, it's just, yeah, you really are, you've gone too deep and you are getting fucked. But it's harsh, it's a harsh scene. Well, yeah, and it's, that thing, it just kind of leaves you on this, like, moment of just, like, well, they're both, they're both, like, they both got some comeuppance for being, like, criminals, but, like, probably more than they, I don't know, especially David more than he deserved, because he kind of, like, we see this moment of him putting the money, like putting the diamonds and that back, like, and he's like crying yes. in the vault. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, uh, and like his death felt a lot more like heartbreaking to me than necessarily Jim's in that it's, it's like, 
I don't know. G- G- Jim's got blood on his hands. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, like, he has. kind of. Yeah. You you had seen it in his eyes that he was like, it, like you don't know if, like Walter White, if at any point that that David had kind of like stopped him from getting to his next goal, then he would have been the next one up on the on the hit list. Mm. So like, yes. but yeah, when yeah. when when, da- when David goes, it's kind of like a bit like oh man, and then like um. Well, like the final scene on this, I couldn't help but think of uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah, you know, I like thought the... the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was a really nice touch, and especially like with the profession they were in in regards to uh, the evidence. Like, yeah, they, working they, in they, evidence. They're crime yeah. scene investigators, aren't they? Kind of, and, that's, and, the, and the whole thing is almost, I saw that almost as a hint that I was like, oh, is this sort of hinting that Nicolas Cage's idea at the beginning about a kind of evidence port sort of mobile evidence lab or something has maybe been I was like has maybe been instigated. I don't know. Like yeah, that'd be quite fun as well if that's if that's the case. But yeah, I definitely got the Indiana Jones vibe. I think uh, I think that's got to be deliberate, I think. Yeah. Because I think it is a nice little play on the fact that they they worked in evidence and stuff like that and the evidence locker and all that stuff. Well, and I think the the theme that is used in this as well, in regards to like the music, mm. that like is at the beginning and the end is this kind of like sixties, uh, seventies, like soul kind of like track, uh, which I think is an original composition by Reza Safina, uh, and it's like it kind of harkens back to like Ocean's Eleven, whether it's the Soderbergh or the original, in this kind of like, do you know what I mean, like. It's got that, oh, like, upbeat feeling mm. to it, but, like, using that kind of, like, old Vegas as well. And, like, that's, yeah. that's what I think's, like, good about this is, like, it's got that thing of, like, it hints, like, and it's, like, over on the strip, that's where Danny Ocean and his boys, like, knock yeah. about and do their heist. The strip like, like, is far away. Like, that, that kind yeah. of monorail scene where you can kind of see the strip in the distance. Yeah. I liked it. It's sort of gleaming far away in the distance. It's that thing of going, considering these characters live in Las Vegas, you don't actually feel like they ever go near the actual strip itself. It's like it's like yeah. they're in the dirty side, that's it. And the kind of magical paradise that is far away, out of reach. That's how it Well, felt. this is going to be like, yeah, this is going to be a very niche-like reference to people who live in Brighton, but it's like, uh, when friends from out of town like come visit you in Brighton, they're like, "Oh, what are the pubs like on West Street?" And it's like, "Well, no, that's that's not where the people of Brighton go to drink." Like, yeah, that is for the out, <laughs> that is for the out of towners. Do you know what I mean? We're we're, we're in the West far Street we're in the far Brighton's version of the last Vegas trip. <laughs> basically, isn't it? Basically, on on on. Do you know what I mean? On a on on a very very like Poundland budget. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Ninety nine p like, store even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, in regards to this film, I always ask at the end of this um, three questions, and they they are quite quite simple. Uh, does Nick Cage have bad hair in this movie? Luke? Well, he doesn't have good hair, does he? Like, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I would say it's not it's not bad as in terrible. Like you go, oh, what a bad hair day! But he's he's got kind of a receding hairline hasn't he and he's kind of you know well, you, it, he, he natural <laughs> this. Yeah, yeah 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 and he's got this kind of dodgy tash 
and stuff. So it's not it's not it's not great at the end. I would say, like you say, he's just playing his age, isn't he? He's just playing a normal suburban kind of man. He's he's dad bod yeah. mode in this. Yeah, and then um, does he do anything crazy with his voice? Obviously, he's a guy who is known for like going out there, whether it's Vampire's Kiss or uh, Trespass. He does these like kind of bizarre voices that come from left turn. Like, is there any? I don't think he did anything too mad with his voice in this, did he? No, 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 I, I, I not thought he really. Made... He's pretty kind think... of like. Or was there something you spotted? I don't think I know. No, I just think he, 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 if anything, he has this kind of nice lilt to his voice. And it, it reminded me, his character in this as well. I'm not sure if you've seen the 2000, uh, I think it's 17 film, Army of One. No. Where he, play, he, he plays a real life uh, uh, guy called uh, Gary Faulkner. And uh, he's like a really heightened character, but he kind of had like the charm of that character in this and just had this like, Again, like a, a real life quality to his performance and like his voice as well. He sounded like a real life guy, whereas like sometimes Cage can drift into the the cartoon or the outlandish, mm. especially in his vocal performances in films. Um, I do think he's likable in this film. I think his character yeah. is likable. Like you're like yeah. he seems like a fun guy to have a beer with. Oh yeah, like definitely. Like when, when like there's that kind of exchanges at the. Um, at the bar they go to at the beginning and like it's just like from then i was like this could be played as like a really like cool like comedy heist movie about yeah. these two guys like there's like these jokes back and forth of like a guy getting a hand job down at the bar and it's like i don't know and like the whole thing with the the lemon and the tabasco is just like it's a nice little just like quirk to the character that like yes didn't yeah, have to definitely. be there but like adds to it um and do we get a Nicolas Cage freak out in this movie, Liam? Yeah, I think we do, don't we? Because obviously when there's the scene where he screams uh, uh Elijah Wood, open it! Open it! Like, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. He de- definitely that's his big freak out, isn't it, in the film? So when topping off the end of this film, Liam, like, uh, is there anything else that kind of jumped out to you? Anything that we missed in regards to the trust? Uh, well, again, just more kind of, yeah, the cinematography, really, because there's another, uh, there is a moment where they do that sort of tilt-shift effect, uh, which they used uh, famously in the social network, uh, where yes. at the Henry on Thames boat race, where they use the, the certain camera effect to make all the boats look like miniatures. And they do that effect uh, at one point during a car park scene to make all the all the cars look miniature. And I was really... It was just one of those things where I was just like, this film could so easily be made by a really uh, kind of journeyman director of photography. And that that clearly is not the case here with, with Sean Porter. Like, it, it's got so much character in it. Even the, the moment that you mentioned where it's like, you know, the overhead shot... Uh, with the um, kind of the, the tape diagram of the flat, like that's really, really inventive kind of filmmaking into something that costs nothing to do, kind of thing, but instantly has a it stands out visually. It's similar yeah, to the location thing where you can take something which doesn't cost that much money and, and do something that looks great, kind of visually, and that's kind of the stuff that really kind of uh, stuck out to me um, here with this film, really. And just, yeah, it's just really 
for a movie that could have been quite low rent, kind of everyone is kind of putting 110% in it to make it as good as it can be. Well, that's what I really like about it, is it has no right to be as good as it is, really, yeah. in regards to, like, in regards to, like, the, the 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 time in which it came out in, like, Nicolas Cage's career and, like, looks like it should be this, like, really, but, like, really low budget and just, like, trashy straight-to-VOD yeah. movie. But it's not, like, it, it's, like, it's, it is low budget, but it, it, it uses its budget well and it's interesting and, like, it's got enough twists and turns in it and, like, does interesting things with the characters and stuff like that. And, like, that scene, like you mentioned with the tape floor, like, like it looks like Cage is doing interesting things. Like, for no for no apparent reason, mm. he's just got this nose covered in, like, sun cream. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, that makes you think, like, he's thought about who that guy is. Yeah, and like yeah. that just that just oozes throughout this film. It's like Nicolas Cage is like, I know who this is, and it, it feels like he's like borrowed a bit from his own kind of catalogue, and he kind of feels like he could be in like the spectrum of uh, Big Daddy in uh, Kickass, Kick in that like yeah, they're from that like do you know what I mean they're they're that yeah straight straight lace mustachioed guy who have got like this darker side looming in the background and like could could at, at one point in their life could have easily have just been a suburban dad. But yeah. That's a very interesting take actually, because I don't know if you, have you ever actually read the original comic book that Kickass is based on? No. Um, so, so I have, it's, it's really great in a, I, I love the film as well, but I was, and I'd say, the film is sort of, for me, like a perfect adaptation where they're faithful to what matters, but they change just enough kind of thing to kind of, you know, uh, go make it work as a film more. Because one of the things that's different in the comic is Big Daddy's character and that, when they're introduced, appears to be like this hardcore, like, superhero character and basically... It's this thing of, oh, this is um, uh, kick-ass meeting the real superheroes, as it's played in the film. Um, but then, when they actually get captured by the bad guys, and he uh, Big Daddy meets his death, in his final moments before he dies, he actually confesses that it's all bullshit, that he is exactly the same as kick-ass, he is just a comic book nerd... Um, himself, who was inspired by Kick-Ass on TV to don a costume and come out, and actually he's just as sad and kind of like a bigger loser. And then he gets shot in the head. And the whole, the, the genius of the comic is that Hit-Girl, because he's been literally training her since she was a little girl, is the only real superhero, because she, yeah. as a child, didn't have any of those preconceptions. She was just actually trained as a kid, and has become a real superhero, whereas everyone else was just inspired by comic books and, like, bullshit. Whereas in the film, you never get that reveal. It is very much that he was, like, this hardcore real guy, and when he dies, he, he stays that hero until the end. You never get that undercut moment. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this feels more like the Big Daddy of the comics, where he's a guy who is living out his fantasy. 
in it. So yeah, he is yeah, a yeah. sad loser who is getting to be like, oh, actually coming alive for one night. Going. Like, you know, that's how it feels. Yeah, and I think it, it makes for like, it makes for a really interesting character. And like, this is one of those ones that like, especially in this period that like, I will implore uh, people to like, visit. Like, if you, if, you, if, you haven't, if you haven't seen it, like, obviously, if you listen to this point in the podcast, there's probably, like, you could argue no point in watching it because we've spoiled most of it. But at the same time, I think even knowing all that you know now from listening to this, that there is still, like, good stuff to be had because I don't think, like, there's certain aspects. Just even watch it for, like, Nick Cage doing the cha-cha with his, like, colleagues whilst you work at a hotel. Because it is just a moment of just like... Well, I thought he was he doing knows. a sort of boxing thing. You can't see if he put his jukes up almost, doing yeah. a sort of... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, he's, he's got his hips going as well, <laughs> hasn't he? He's, got, like, he's great, really, he's like... great. But like you said, I mean, it's, you know, spoilers. Like, obviously, you know, you'll put a spoiler warning on this. I'm sure you do on all of them at the end of the day because yeah. we're kind of going, going deep. But it, it's that thing of like... Yeah, I, I would say, you know, it just doesn't matter. It's, it's I, I don't think you're kind of prepared. I don't think many people be prepared for what this film actually is at the end of the day. Like, you know, put plot aside, I think in terms of the kind of vibe it has, the sort of tone and how full of character and quirk it is and actually a surprising amount of visual pizzazz. Uh, I think it will surprise people anyway. I mean, especially for a film that has such a bizarre release schedule, because this is almost teetering on TV movie. It was actually released on direct TV first before it hit theaters. Um, yeah, direct yeah. TV is like a cable kind of like channel in America. Like they showed like things like Friday Night Lights and stuff like that. And then a couple of days later, it was released on VOD and kind of into theatres at the same time. So really bizarre. It did have a, a theatrical release, but like it was clearly, you know, probably a little window to kind of, you know, probably unlock some deal or something, I expect. Like, you know, this is mostly kind of a VOD film. And this isn't, you know, this is not your typical straight to video movie, I don't think. No, and whilst looking at, like, uh, yeah, I was, I was looking on IMDb, uh, I love to look at what the titles are from around the world. Uh, and my the one that jumps out to me uh, that is, like, uh, a great title is the German title, which is The Trust, Big Trouble in Sin City. It's <laughs> like this, that's like the sequel. It's making it into a series, like The Trust 2, yeah. Big Trouble in well, Sin City. Well, the, the, the trust, big trouble in Sin City really makes it sound grindhousey and yeah. B-movie as, as hell. Do you know what I mean? Like, you need, I don't know, you, you need some real schlock for it and to be. And there is a scene, that. there's a German scene, isn't it? It is Germany that he calls in the film, isn't it? Uh, again, another brilliant moment yeah. of comedy. Right. Yeah, it's, so, it's, so funny. Because he, yeah, he calls like, up to get some kind of... It's something for opening the safe, isn't it? And he's using a, a German phrase book. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really, really funny scene again. Yeah, because we have this German guy on the other end going like, oh, like he, he's probably a bank robber or something. Like, they're yeah. kind of sarcastically like, oh, how exciting. Like, Yeah, like, completely. Like, There's yeah. some... Uh, definitely some knowing moments mm. in the script uh, mm-hmm. with this, like that... 
where the kind of, you know, the German guys are sort of, the, they actually know what he, he's trying to cover what he's doing and they know what he's up to. And they're like, oh, it's really cool uh, that he's doing that. And there's another moment where um, Nick Cage actually says, well, it is a bit of a twist at a certain point <laughs> yeah. where there is a twist in the film. And so, you know, you've got little knowing dialogue peppered in there as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, this is totally a, a recommend from me. Like, you know, it's it's kind of one of those films where I go, it's not, it's not a masterpiece or anything like that, but it is a really strong little film that does a lot with a little, and I think it shows huge amounts of promise for the directors in the future. Oh, definitely. And I always like to look at, like, um, where Nick Cage is at his career at this point. So, like, this film is uh, sandwiched between Pay the Ghost, which uh, uh, you need to... If you're going to watch that movie, you need to hold your nose and dive in because it is is not a a good film. And... um, yeah, and then it was followed by Paul Schrader's Dog Eat Dog, which, again, is a film that, like, is interesting, yet, like... Made, I like, like Dog Eat Dog. Yeah. But I know that it's got its detractors, but actually... And also, would make a great double bill with this. I think they've got quite yeah. a lot of similarities. Both kind of heist-gone-wrong films. Um, Dog Eat Dog is slightly more lurid um, in its mm-hmm. kind of uh, presentation. Uh, William Defoe, great in that movie as well as the oh. Mad Dog character. Well, I mean, Cage is great it, again. I think that's a really strong little kind of like film. I think, yeah, these back to back. That's really that's really decent little uh, double bill. Well, I think, and it plays into the fact as well, like this film and Dog Eat Dog, plays into the fact that Cage will do stuff that he finds interesting, regardless of like obviously there's this thing of the paycheck, but like. Time and time again, he has proved that, like, it isn't just all about that. Like, mm. earlier on in his career in 2013, he turned down a role in Expendables 3 to be in Joe. Like, regardless of how much he got paid for this, like, he's still giving his all and, like, looks like he wants to be there in this movie. So. Yeah, and that's telling, isn't it? That is telling in terms of, although At- he's working a lot, Kind of thing. The fact that he would turn down a role in Expendables Three, which would would have been a big pay- payday for him, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, that's when that was at its height. That franchise, in terms of yeah. money, box office clout, and stuff, um, and to do something like Joe, a much smaller film, shows that actually he does. Although he he, he doesn't care about soiling his good name with shitty films, he does care enough to go, well, I will do this film for less money than this film for more money. As long as I'm getting paid, I will choose to do the better film if I get the yeah, chance. And, and with Dog Eat Dog, like, he took a cut in his pay in order for Willem Dafoe to get paid because, like, Paul Schrader at that point, after making Dying of the Light with Nicolas Cage, which has, like, a wild, wild story of kind of, like... How oh, that film, yes, like, I've heard about this, yeah. Yeah, ended up and like a lot of disputes with producers and the studio and stuff like that. Paul Schrader didn't really have the money to make the film he wanted to, but wanted these two kind of like, I don't know, stalwarts of cinema in Nick Cage and Willem Dafoe. And Cage was like, you know what? 
take money out of my paycheck to pay Willem Dafoe and like gave gave him money which is again is just like a that's like what a guy like do you know what I mean like not to not to like obviously the, there is an element of this being a Nicolas Cage appreciation podcast but like that has taken time like this started off as kind of like ah oh, fuck you Nick like why have you made me watch all your films even though I chose to do it like yeah. but like <laughs> now, I, I've, I've softened to the guy and I think like a film like The Trust really makes me think, like, ah, oh, like he can, like he can do really good and interesting stuff, like, yeah. And it, I, I find it baffling that he can do it a year after, obviously, regardless of when it was like filmed. But like, yeah, the year before he did The Runner and Pay the Ghost, which like both of them are stinkers. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. This, I mean, it feels this, like there's a lot of stinkers around this period, and like you say, to get. To get the trust and doggy dog in there side by side is a real yeah. You feel that must have got him, got him through artistically. Like you know, for a while I've gone like, well, I've done these two like decent films, like yeah, mm-hmm. in the midst of all this trash. Perfect. So obviously, you recommend this film. I one hundred percent recommend this film. Uh, if you're a Cage fan, even if you're not, if you if you like Elijah Wood as well. Uh, I very much as a kid liked watching Elijah Wood in North. I don't think I'll ever watch that movie again because I feel like my childhood would be trampled on. But, uh, Liam, obviously you do the Spotlight podcast, which uh, I've been listening to a lot recently and I absolutely adore. Uh, yeah, uh, I think I messaged you to be like, I just listened to your episode with Richard Donner that you recorded like years ago. Uh, but like, I was like, that like, I don't, you guys have been like, yeah, having interviewed Richard Donner personally has like really inspired me to be like, you know what, I'm gonna fucking like aim for the aim for the stars and maybe I'll land on the clouds. Uh, aim for in cage. regards to get... it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that is. So um, yeah, like obviously for everyone listening at home who may not have listened to us on Bangkok Dangerous because that is a steaming pile of shit. Uh, how would you sell them Spotlight and what do you do and where can people find you? So, yeah, Spotlight uh, is is my podcast, which is a Star Trek podcast primarily. Um, however, it is the Star Trek podcast from a non-Trekkie perspective. So me and my other host, Matt and Paul, were not kind of massive uh, Star Trek nerds going to conventions or anything before we started the podcast. We're film fans, first and foremost. And we just started the podcast as an excuse, really, to hang out more and talk movies. And it just was a way of kind of shaping that and a fun hook. We started with the Star Trek films. And it's kind of grown out since there. I mean, it we're coming up to kind of four years now. Uh, it be four years in September uh, since we started. And since then, it's just kind of blossomed out. Um, and yeah, we've kind of examined, uh, the franchise from so many different aspects and, you know, because it is such a gigantic, um, franchise that takes in so many TV shows and films. Uh, we've interviewed people from the world of Star Trek. Uh, we've had Robert Salen on the show, who's the producer of Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. Um, you know, probably the most famous Star Trek film. Uh, more recently we've had Shazad Latif on the show, uh, who plays Ash Tyler 
is Star Trek Discovery, the big uh, new Star Trek show, also famous for being Clem Fandango and Tess of London, of course. Um, <laughs> we had an interview episode with him and loads of other um, great people from the world of Star Trek we've interviewed. And as you say, we've also interviewed Dick Donner, um, the director of the Lethal Weapon films, and the Goonies and Superman and such like that. Um, we've also uh, started a series of episodes called Spotlight the Movies, uh, where we examine a film featuring a member of Star Trek alumni, either in front or behind the camera. So things like Free Men and a Baby, directed by Leonard Nimoy. Um, we've had some great guests on um, there for that, uh, like Nick DeSemlin um, from Empire Magazine and Boyd Hilton from the Pilot TV podcast. Um, and just most recently, we've started On Screen, uh, which is a new thread of episodes where we talk about a major kind of Star Trek uh, cast member appearing, uh, guest starring on another classic kind of TV show. Uh, so we started Amazing. with George Takei on Miami Vice, and we've just recorded an episode with Chris Hewitt from Empire Magazine, who's been on this podcast, of course, on your Kick-Ass yeah. episode, and he came on to talk about William Shatner in Columbo, uh, because he's a massive Columbo fan. Um, and so that will be probably the next episode out, depending on when this uh, goes out. And we've just released, finally, our Star Trek Picard episode as well, Dan Thomas, who's a brilliant Welsh comedian, absolutely fantastic uh, guy, who's a regular uh, guest on Smirsh Pod, which is a wonderful podcast as well. Uh, and he came on to discuss that with us. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I would say, whether you're a Star Trek fan or not really doesn't matter. I think that there's probably, if you have a look through our list of episodes, uh, there's probably something that will appeal to you in there. We've covered a very wide range of things over the years. So uh, you can find us at Spotlight Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and obviously Spotlight at any um, kind of major podcast provider. And uh, yeah, come check us out. Perfect, Liam. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. And uh, I'm so glad that your second experience wasn't as bad as your first. And uh, I will tell the listeners at home that is not the first time I've ever said that to someone. <laughs> but recording the podcast for Bangkok Dangerous was fun. Watching the film, not so much. That's what I mean. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, like the, 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 the product itself wasn't, wasn't really, didn't give you the oomph. Whereas, like, that, that that's kind of an, uh, the experience of me. Like, do you know what I mean? Like going through it, it's like, and then oh, some, well, I don't know. No, that that sounds like an STI thing. Not that I give people uh, STIs. That I'm 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 losing my mind here. It's been too long. I'm really warm. Uh, I've watched too many Nick Cage films, and my mind has rotted. Uh, Liam, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back on the podcast. I'm sure somewhere down the line, when I inevitably loop back round and. Start again at cage number one. We'll be back on, and we'll we'll have to talk about another time when two brothers directed a film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll get to raising Arizona. Maybe. <laughs> Thank you so much, Liam. Pleasure to be here, mate. have it guys another one in the metaphorical bin checked off the list 
I have raged with Cage once again and was joined by the fantastic Liam Dempsey. Hopefully uh, you feel inspired now uh, to listen to his podcast as well, listen to Spotlight. It's really accessible. Uh, I know as soon as like, you hear words like Star Trek a lot of the time, it's like, oh, oh, there's so much history, there's so much heritage, but uh, there's something in there for everyone. Uh, they, they cover some, some, some great stuff, as, as Liam said. And it's not just about Star Trek. It's about so much more. And, uh, yeah, it's a really, really great listen. If you have differing opinions to me and Liam on The Trust, please feel free to get in touch wherever you uh, want to really uh, social media is great they're all at caged in pod and that's facebook twitter and instagram or if you don't like your words out for others to see you can always drop me an email if you really want to go through the nitty gritty and break down and tell me and liam all the points in which we were wrong feel free to do that via email which is caged in pod at gmail.com uh, if you want to support this podcast as well, you can do that in a, a multitude of ways. Uh, one of them is really easy, where you can just chuck money at me and uh, I, I can create more fun stuff and I can put that money towards uh, better equipment and uh, getting merchandise and stuff like that. So, yeah, something I, I really want to um, move forward with. Uh, again, like, if, 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 if I could sell some merch, I'm probably going to be begging you to uh, sign up to Patreon, which is easy. It's patreon.com forward slash caged in pod. Or if you want something a bit more tangible and something that you can keep that doesn't doesn't just like branded caged in cases. Uh, there's an amazing art print I have for sale over at uh, cagedinpodcast.limitedrun.com. And that's an art print that is inspired by the ill-fated Tim Burton film uh, Superman Lives that would have been Nick Cage as Superman and yeah, the amazing artist Tim Hornsby has done a DC style front cover of what a comic book would have looked like in that kind of parallel universe where Nick Cage did get to play Superman and uh, yeah they're fantastic, uh, I can say that because uh, as much, as much as I'm selling them, uh, I didn't draw it. I'm a massive fan of the art. And I went to Tim, who had drawn this for me years ago, and said, hey, man, I really love this piece of art. Can we, like, can we sell it? And then, like, at least other people can enjoy this. Like, you don't have to be a fan of this podcast to enjoy it. If you, if you know a Superman fan, or send it their way. They might, they might really enjoy it. It's really nice. Uh, high quality print on a nice recycled card, uh, full colour, and yeah, on the back of them, just a little bonus, a little treat, a little Easter egg, because obviously if you frame it or whatever, you're never going to see this. Uh, they're all hand-numbered by me, as well as a unique Nicholas Cage quote on the back. Perfect. Well, there is all my sales pitch done for this week, guys. Uh, Please, 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 please join me next week when I will be talking to Stephen Trumbull. Yes, you may recognize that surname. 
because he is the twin brother of the crude guest and animation expert David Trumbull and me and Stephen will be talking about the 2016 film Snowden. If you've seen it, great, great. If you haven't seen it, I have no uh, streaming recommendations for you because as far as I know in the UK and the US this is not streaming anywhere but I'm sure you can pick it up on uh, VOD services or a physical Blu-ray or DVD for relatively cheap. Look forward to catching up with you guys next week and getting deep into this cyber chat and the, the chat of Snowden. So until then I have been Petrus Patsilvus. I have been caged in. You have been amazing. Thank you for listening. Bye. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.